Our opening words this morning are from the Unitarian Universalist minister, David H. Eaton. David Eaton was the senior minister at All Souls, our sibling congregation down 16th Street, and he was the first African-American senior minister to serve a, a Unitarian Universalist congregation, in fact. This reading is called A Common Destiny. All living substance, all substance of energy, being, and purpose are united and share the same destiny. All people, those we love and those we know not of, are united and share the same destiny. Birth to death, we share this unity with the sun, earth, our siblings and neighbors, strangers. Flowers of the field, snowflakes, volcanoes, and moonbeams. Birth, life, death. Unknown, known, unknown. Our destiny from unknown to unknown. May we have the faith to accept this mystery and build upon its everlasting truth. One, two. Trips to go around the sun. 
I'm trying to find what it means to be me. I feel like I've barely begun. How many souls can be crowded together? Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. My name is Perry Bider, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. I am so glad that you're here this morning, either in the room or watching on Facebook. A special, guest to, a special welcome to our visitors and guests, those who are here for the first time and those who've been here before and haven't been scared off yet. Uh, if you have a blue name tag on, don't be surprised if someone with a permanent name tag comes up to you after the service to welcome you personally. Longtime members, that was a hint. Don't make me look bad now. Uh, we love talking about why this community is important to us, and we're curious about what you're looking for, and would like to try answering any questions that you have. Of course, if you just want to have your coffee and cookies, that's fine too. Also, please consider sharing your email with us. It's, uh, you can put that on the gold sheet in your program, and so we can add you to our mailing list for the weekly uh, upcoming events notice. And you can drop that in the collection basket as it passes later in the service. Now, as many of you know, our clergy intern, Zeb Green, is on a leave of absence this month for, as he engages in organizing support and activism at our border with Mexico. I wonder if we could send him some care. Amanda wants to take a quick video. So on her count of three, how about if we all say, elicit the best, Zeb, okay? <laughs> elicit the best, Zeb. Thank you. Um, while Amanda has her phone out, that's a good time for me to remind you to please silence your electronic devices uh, so we can all be fully present. But if you want to check in on social media and tell people that they still have another chance to come at 1130, that's fine. Uh, and now I invite Tom Bishop to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. Tom is in the cast, I believe, is that correct? Of next week's Winter Festival. Uh, which you do not want to miss. It will be held at 11.30 and 4.30. There is no 9.30 platform next week. Please sleep in, okay? The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit, with faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. 
If you are new to our community of children and adults, we warmly invite you to join us as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Tom. As Tom lights our community candle, I invite you to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today I am particularly mindful of asylum seekers at our border and also of everyone who has been affected by the AIDS crisis. Yesterday was World's AIDS Day. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Please take a moment to get as comfortable as you can in the seat. Close your eyes if that's comfortable for you or just let them focus softly in front of you. And start by taking a deep breath. And another and another, just being aware of the sensation of the air moving in and out. Breath is one of the human universals. Everyone at any time in history has breathed. Imagine that as a source of connection to everyone in the human family. For example, imagine that you are breathing as a person in Kenya 500 years ago. Or in Brazil a thousand years ago. or in China 5,000 years ago. In the remaining silence, I invite you to connect with the history of the human family 
in whatever way works for you.
Terry just whispered to me, good luck following that. <laughs> I completely agree, Perry, actually. Ooh, I will say, as we talk about mystery and the connection of humanity, to hear a, um, just a sung vocalization like that without words, that was so beautiful. Thank you, Nicole and David, both of you. Mm -mm. Yes, well, I do have to say something, sadly, Perry. <laughs> this month we are talking about the theme of mystery all through December. And you know, it's so funny because I think humanists sometimes get this, um, this bum rap as not being um, connected into the experience of mystery. You know, as though humanists are interested only in uh, facts and, and sort of science and, I don't know, maybe Excel spreadsheets. You know, we, we get together and sort of look at graphs or something. Um, as our experience of uh, connection with wonder and awe. But that has not been uh, my experience at all in this congregation or myself or in conversations with some of you. In fact, I have found that folks who identify as humanist or as religiously open, as spiritually progressive, are actually in touch with the experience of mystery, of wonder, and of awe in really deep and present ways. One of the songs I particularly love, um, which I think may show up later in the month, is um, Peter Mayer's Holy Now. And uh, it's a song in which the songwriter reflects on his childhood and uh, uh, being raised Catholic, where sort of there were certain things that were considered holy or sacred. And without in any way denigrating that experience, he talks about his life now um, where everything is holy, a much a kind of humanist understanding of the world where everything might be a window or a door to an experience of awe. And we're going to talk about many of those windows over the course of the month. Um, next Sunday, as Perry mentioned, is our um, winter festival, which is our annual celebration where we look at the values of peace, hope, love, joy, and giving, or generosity. And we're going to explore it through a little bit of a, a, a mystery tale, um, a favorite winter festival that is coming back, and, um, and look at, at the mysterious presence of those things, of hope and love in our lives, even when we think that we are most disconnected from them. And then the Sunday after that, Vincent Tyler is going to help me talk about the cosmos, our sense of mystery and wonder when we look up at the stars around us or the sunset, the world, the universe that we live in. We'll talk a little bit the next week about our inner experiences, the connections of mysticism and humanism. And then on the final Sunday in December, we're going to ask big questions with each other and try to answer them. I think we're going to have a lot of fun and hope you come to that one as well. But today, what I wanted to do was to think about what is for me one of the core sources of my experience of what some might call spirituality or um, emotiveness, emotive connection, emotional connection in the world, which is connection to other human beings. Um, you know, I love the stars as much as the next person, but for me, the thing that gets my heart feeling really full is when I think about how I am connected to people across the globe 
and over time. It's sort of a, a common like trope or you know truism now to talk about how small the world is, right? You know, we can see videos instantaneously that happened across the globe. Um, and all of that is true, and it does help me to feel connected um, in those ways to people who are alive now. But I think for me, the, the more um, mystical or mysterious experience is a sense of connection to people who lived centuries and millennia or multiple millennia ago to imagine what it is to be human now and how my humanness is the same as or connected to the humanness of people whose, whose daily lives I can only begin to imagine or perhaps cannot even imagine. And then I start to, to wonder about the universality of the human experience. So, so when I first imagined this platform, what I, what I, and I should say actually it wasn't, I, I did not imagine it out of whole cloth. So we gathered a group of folks a couple of months ago to talk about December, January, and February about our themes and, and what we wanted to explore. And that group identified this sort of core question, which was, which was articulated like this. How come everyone builds pyramids? That's like the subtitle of this platform in my original imagining. How come everybody builds pyramids? How come there were pyramids in Egypt and then there were also pyramids in Mexico? That's weird. How come everybody builds pyramids? And, um, and so the thing is, I have no idea why everybody builds pyramids, um, it turns out, um, or why there are so many similar myths across cultures that had no interaction with each other, why there are similar fairy tales, even our stone soup story, which you can see a little more easily, maybe traveled from culture to culture in an oral storytelling tradition, but really, why did everybody build pyramids? So those were the questions that we wanted to think about. Is there something essential in the human spirit, some kind of mysterious drive to pyramid building, you know? A universal sense of who we are and what we create in the world, what we imagine in the world around us. So um, I realized relatively early that I didn't actually know anything about this topic, like literally nothing. Um, and, um, and so I reached out to a couple different places and, and connected with an anthropology professor um, who then told me at the beginning of this week that he had an unavoidable conflict and couldn't be here this morning. And so um, I was panicking mildly in the um, office, which looks like me going, I don't know what to say, what am I going to do, oh my gosh. And, um, and Bailey, our music director, said, you know, I once heard um, Jason Lang say something smart about language. I wonder if he knows about this. <clears throat> the moral of this story, which may be a universally held story across many cultures, we don't know, um, is don't say things in front of Bailey Whiteman because she will um, tell me about it and then I'll send you a desperate email on uh, Tuesday morning. So it turns out Jason does know things about this. Um, as was evidenced in his email response. And so I've actually asked him to come and, and share a little bit the portion of this platform that will be actual information based in scholarship and reality. And then I'll come back and have some random musings. So um, Jason, will you come on and take it away for us? Morning, everyone. Uh, so 
As Amanda said, I'm Jason. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, hers. And, uh, oh, no, he, him, his. So that definitely ties into the next part of what I prepared, which was when Amanda asked me to talk a little bit, a little bit about anthropology, I thought, well, I don't have any advanced degrees, and I'm kind of terrified of public speaking, but that's okay. Uh, I'll do it. I'm not a practicing anthropologist, but I did study it, and it still plays a big role in how I view the world and how I do my job as a journalist. Uh, one idea that many anthropologists stress is that a lot of culture is arbitrary. That goes for just about everything we think of as culture. Some groups of people do things really differently than other groups of people. Uh, like the types of jobs that men and women do, or how much infor personal information is okay to share with strangers. All these conventions, like language, are, are learned, and they change over time. But what is culture? What is language? And as different as cultures seem, what, what's up with all the similarities between them? I, I don't think I have an answer to why everyone builds pyramids. I think it's something to do with... I think there's an engineering element to that, but um, so when, when I was in college, there was this ongoing battle in anthropology, in the anthropology department, uh, over what the discipline should be about. Uh, sometimes it got heated, as, as you can imagine. Uh, I'm, I'm going to oversimplify that debate here and separate the arguments into two camps. On the one side, you had anthropologists who practiced science. Uh, anthropology has a really wide scope. It's the study of humankind. So you have biological anthropology, um, which uh, charts that sort of prehistory paleontology element of going way, way back, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. Uh, cultural anthropology, linguistic anthropology, and in a lot of departments, particularly in North America, archaeology. The science-minded anthropologists want to do all of this empirically. They measure things and they test hypotheses. Doing anthropology this way, 50-odd years ago, a, a couple of scholars gathered data on color words from languages around the world. They noticed that in each of the world's big languages, like the ones that we all know about, English, Spanish, Mandarin, all, all kinds of languages, uh, in each of these, there were a lot of words that exclusively, that referred exclusively to nothing but color. Um, so in English, you have words like red, blue, green, yellow, purple. Uh, violet is not a color term, technically, because it's also a flower. But then in some of the smaller scale societies where anthropologists helped study and record languages in the 20th century, uh, folks had two or three or folks, some these folks had only two or three or maybe four color terms. They relied more on words like violet and orange, which also describe things like a flower or, or a fruit. And it turns out that across human experience, there's a pattern for which colors get their word. All get their own word, I should say. All languages have a minimum of at least two color words, one for dark tones, like black, and another for light tones, like white. 
And if language just has one additional color, color word, a third one, it will always be red, always. If a language has red and also one more, it will be yellow or green. So, and you look at these colors and you see, these are colors that we see quite a lot of, stoplights, places like that. Um, so if a language has a word for red, so there are languages that have a word for red but don't have one for green, but there's no language anywhere, at least um, when I was in college at that particular part of the time of scholarship, and I think this is held up pretty well, uh, there's no language that has a word for green but none for red. So this iron rule blew anthropologist minds, blue, blue mine. Uh, besides discovering there was this part of culture that many of them figured had to be rooted in the physiology of the eye, something to do with the rods and cones, and red is just a particularly salient color for humans. Uh, some of them argue that it also showed languages don't need as much abstraction when people have more shared experience. If you and I spend a lot of time together, like people do in, in, in uh, really small-scale societies where you know, everybody knows one another, um, or maybe they know one another more than, than you, you, they don't run into as many strangers as you or I do. Uh, if you spend a lot of time together, as people in these small societies do, that only have a, these small societies that only have a handful of color words, we're, we're gonna be familiar with the same things. We both know that a particular kind of rose is red, so maybe we don't need a dedicated color word for it. And large societies don't use language that way as much. On the other side of the anthropology department, you had anthropologists who had big reservations about the idea of cultural relativism. They said, we can tell evil when we see it, and part of our job should be to expose it and speak truth to power. Historically, anthropologists were expected to go someplace very foreign and do field research. One famous anthropologist who argued for a militant anthropology said that when she was doing her field research in South Africa and observing oppression during apartheid, she felt it incumbent on her to take a side. And some of these anth activist anthropologists took issue with the very notion that anthropology could be objective, that it even should try to be objective. As I mentioned, I don't have any advanced degree. I mostly studied under the science-oriented anthropologists, but like everyone in this room, I think our ethical stance is really important. Lots of anthropologists will give you a different definition for culture. Uh, they might call it a system of shared beliefs, values, and behaviors. Others might think of it as distributed cognition. I think a really useful way it came about, um, I think of a really useful way to think of it comes from a, a Swiss linguist who gave such a bang up class in linguistics that when he died about a hundred years ago, without publishing a book about his ideas, his, his students gathered their notes from his lectures and they published a book that went on to inspire generations of social scientists and, and even literary critics too. He pointed out that 
Language doesn't really exist except for the shared connections between people. There isn't really a correct version of English, certainly not in a metaphysical sense. There are only versions of English that we all think of as correct. There are only versions of English housed in other people's heads that are easier or harder for us to understand, depending on the connections you have with that person. Saying someone doesn't speak good English is often talking about a power relationship. The militant anthropologists, I, I think, are right that we need to keep our eye on that. Nobody's gonna have in their head the exact same set of relationships between sounds, gestures, and ideas that you do. But to the extent that your rules and my rules overlap, we speak the same language. A lot of anthropologists and social scientists have tried to catalog universals. Children always learn to talk at pretty much the same pace everywhere. And that might be a sign that languages, every language is equally complex, equally complicated, that no language is harder or more complicated than any other. If, if one were, children probably wouldn't learn it as quickly. Some anthropologists see the similarities between different cultures as an artifact of our biological constraints. Uh, there was an American psychologist in the 1950s who found that people could only keep a handful of distinct chunks of information in their heads at once. They had limits. We all have limits. He, this psychologist called it the magical number seven plus or minus two. Um, others have since argued the number is closer to four or five. Um, it gets complicated. Linguists found that the length of sentences that we actually use when we talk, not the ones that we write, because we can write an infinitely long sentence, but the, when we actually talk, the length of our sentences in English tends to follow that, to be bound by that constraint. And anthropologists have found signs that these constraints in, happen in all sorts of um, types of, hum, of human experience around the world, uh, the number of players on a team in games, uh, the number of notes in a musical scale that's actually being played. Uh, everybody around the world has the same constraints on our ability to understand the world, and our culture and cultures reflect that. We all also have moral codes. It's a matter of debate how universal the actual codes may be, and we we should probably check ourselves when we take universalist positions anyway. Uh, at the same time, I think of one rule that I consider part of my culture, um, maybe something I learned, try as best as you can not to hurt people. I'm comfortable entertaining, at least entertaining, the idea that the suffering we experience when we do hurt other people, or even inconvenience them, uh, might be part of something primal and, and, and universal. Maybe it's something our human DNA guides us toward as part of our nature, as animals with an impulse to, for complex social relationships. So 
engineering, that's why everybody built pyramids, huh? <laughs> so <clears throat> as, I, as I talked with Jason and heard a little bit about what he was going to share with us, it had me thinking about um, the idea behind particularity and universality, right? You know, how do we now in our own time as we interact with each other and with the world around us both honor and look for that which may be universal among us and that which is deeply particular. I think in, in um, racial justice work, when I was um, raised with sort of that idea of colorblindness, right, of wanting to not see color, see everybody just the same, which has at its heart an impulse toward universality, but misses the particularity of the experience of each person, not only themselves individually and internally, but also how they are experienced in the world and by the world because of the way our society is set up and structured. It made me think of Star Trek as well. I don't know about you, but I was raised on Star Trek Next Generation, but I have watched some of the original Star Trek. And one of the things that I find fascinating about the original Star Trek is here they are going, you know, to galaxies far, far away that nobody's ever explored before. And they find all of these cultures which are so similar to, you know, everybody's got two arms and two legs and, you know, long hair and sort of Grecian robes <clears throat> in, um, in these galaxies far, far away with some little twist, you know, sort of the Star Trek, the original Star Trek universalized the human experience, even as it imagined uh, exploring radically different galaxies. So I think about all of these things, the particular and the universal, the caution against universalizing too much. And I come back to that idea that Jason brought to us around human capability and how that may um, mold and shape our responses. How one of the reasons that we see these similarities across culture has to do with our, our human capacity, right? The rods and cones in our eyes or the limits of our um, physical imagination and engineering. When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to take one class at a college um, uh, campus, I think over the summer. And um, because of who I was, um, I chose the sociology of religion class. And it was a small class, it was only about eight or 10 of us. I'm sure they were delighted to have a 15 year old there, uh, <laughs> looking back. And I don't remember that much about the class, but I remember really distinctly the professor's answer to where religion came from. He talked about, um, I, I, had, I had sort of come out of school thinking that religion was how people answered big questions about the world, you know? Remember the way we were taught about Greek and Roman mythology in school? You know, people didn't know where the thunder came from, so they came up with an answer that had to do with the gods. And so that was my understanding of where religion was likely to have come from. And this sociology professor said, Instead, that religion came out of uh, feelings. He described groups of people all across cultures coming together, singing or talking or just standing with each other, coming together and feeling an experience of oneness, an experience of 
connection, an experience of mystery. Maybe you have felt that experience at some time in your life, some sense of connection that you can't quite explain. Religion, he posited, was what came out of that experience, out of that feeling. It started with a universal human emotion or human experience. And so when I think about what Jason tells us around sort of innate capacity and language responding to that, the way that we see it similarly, I wonder how much is connected to that same idea. That we may not be able to posit universal responses to things, but we can imagine that humans across cultures and across time had some of the same wonderings, some of the same emotional experiences with the world, a sense of awe, a sense of mystery, a sense of connection. I do think that likely we built pyramids because they're a stable engineering form. I perhaps should have checked with engineers first. Uh, yes, Art, you're an engineer, right? It seems stable, sure. Art's nodding at me. It's a stable form. And, and, and that, to me, gets to that same idea. We have a desire to create something, and then we have the limits of physics and engineering, the limits of our own bodies and minds, the number of things we can hold in our brain at the same time. You know, another one of those universal numbers is often talked about in congregational life, actually. Um, across many cultures, there seems to be a number of people that people, an individual can relate to easily. It's about 150. And so sometimes communities break off into new communities at that point, right? If they're living in small-scale societies, that's about the number that you can relate to easily before you start another town or village nearby. Um, and in congregational life, you talk about needing to make sure that when the congregation gets bigger than that number of people, we, we have that limit as well. And so then we you know, make sure that there's a, a smaller group within a big congregation or a big institution to relate to because we've got that limit on our capacity for relationship. So what do we do with all of this? For me, it remains a sense of inspiration and connection to imagine the shared questions that humans have wondered about over time and around the world, to imagine some of the shared answers, the color red connecting us across cultures because we somehow see it in similar ways. One of the metaphors that is most helpful to me when I think about my little life in the context of sort of the arc of human history, which feels so big and so long and where it feels as though I might make such a little tiny bit of difference, is to imagine it as a story, to imagine it chapter by chapter, having been written long before I got here, and with chapters that may be forever lost to my knowledge, and that it will be written long after I leave by people I cannot even yet imagine. And so for me, there's a sense of beauty in the connection, chapter to chapter, and there's an imperative both to understand as deeply as I can what came before and how it relates to the page that I'm reading, 
to look for the commonality in that story, and also to be aware of the particularity, the individuality of each page in that story. And ultimately, returning to that idea of the moral or ethical code that we each carry, to make sure that the little page, the paragraph that I get to write is one of justice and beauty and love, one that seeks commonality and honors difference, that adds as much as I can to the wide and long story of human existence.
This is our community response time. It's an opportunity for some of us to add our voices to the morning's conversation. If you would like to be one of those voices, please raise your hand. I will bring the microphone to you. Please start by saying your first name and remember to hold it this close so that everybody can hear you. I'm gonna give us a moment to collect our thoughts so that the introverts can catch up to the extroverts. <laughs> 